You're listening to The Sipping Forecast. This is a podcast about all things drinks and the brilliant people who make the industry what it is. So pour yourself something cold and kick back for The Sipping Forecast. I'm Henry Jeffries and I am a, a drinks writer. I've written three books on drink um, and I write for lots of publications, The Spectator, The Guardian, BBC Good Food. And I also have a day job working for a drinks retailer called Master of More and I'm the features editor for their blog. So I write articles mainly about whiskey. So I'm a sort of jack of all trades booze person. How have you ended up doing this? Yeah, it's been a sort of meandering path. I've never been a very, you know, I wasn't one of those people who at the age of four decided I wanted to be a doctor and, you know, were a vet and just sort of went for it. So I've had a very, I I, I studied English literature at university and I didn't know what to do. So I got a job at Obbins. This was in Leeds. And it just because they all looked like they were having so much fun selling wine. And I quite like wine. You know, I was, you know, I like drinking it anyway. So I worked there for a year and then I worked for Obbins in London for a year which was not quite so much fun but you know it was still I still learned a lot and then I worked in publishing book publishing for an awfully long time for about 15 years which was sort of you know I, I, again I, you know, I like reading books so I thought I'll go work in publishing but actually if you love books publishing is about the worst place you can work because <laughs> you, you have to deal with lots of books that you don't actually like um so, um, which is, you know, it's one of those sort of weird um, things about a lot of businesses that if you go into a business doing something that you love, you can end up not loving it quite so much because you have to sell stuff that you don't love. You know, I kept up my interest in wine. I used to go to wine tastings with my father and I sort of had accumulated all this wine knowledge, but I didn't have anyone to share it with apart from my father, who, again, wasn't really that interested. He just liked having a drink. So I started a blog called Henry's World of booze in I think it was 2010 and that was sort of the sort of heyday of blogging so you know all kind of producers were like oh blogging booze the future so I got invited to lots of lots of things and I ended up talking to a journalist friend who I'd worked with when I was a publisher called Craig Brown who's used to write for the Telegraph and stuff I think you know, he does loads of stuff for Private Eye and things he did a Beatles book which is just brilliant uh, which came out last year and he read my blog and thought it was very funny and sent it to Rachel Johnson who was the editor of the lady magazine at the time and she called me into her office sort of imperiously and said Henry would you like to be our new features editor I kind of looked at her and said, I said, I don't know anything about being a features editor and she goes nobody does I haven't got a clue what I'm doing um and then I sort of said, well, no, I don't really want to be your features editor, but how about I write a, you know, a monthly drinks column for you? And she said, OK, good idea. So it started from there. And then she very quickly got fired. But the new editor kept me on and I did a, it became a weekly column. And I did that for a long time, for about five years. And, and that was great because, I mean, the pay was terrible. In fact, most of the time they didn't even pay me because their finances were so all over the place. But it was a great kind of introduction to people because rather than just being a drinks blogger, I was the wine critic for the lady, which makes me sound like a character from PG Woodhouse. Um, so that was great. And then I kind of I got a, I had a column at The Guardian for about a year looking at the history of drink. 
I did a book with Unbound called Empire of Booze, which was, again, it's about the his, history of drink. And it all just kind of spiralled from there. And then I realised that I had to give up my day job. So I gave up my day job in 2015 and have been a full-time drinks person ever since. So that's my sort of meandering road to becoming a drinks writer. Is the life of a drinks writer as wonderfully exotic as it appears from a distance? Yes. No. Well, it it, it can be. It can be just amazing because you get jetted off to Portugal or I went to Lebanon a few years ago when it was a bit calmer. And you just get treated like royalty and you have all these ama- all this amazing food and wine and they always, almost always, almost always put you up in very nice hotels. Especially if you go to Porto, you know, you visit, you know, Taylor's or Quinta de Naval. They just, they're lovely people. The wines are fantastic. They all own hotels. They put you up in them. And it is splendid and i and i just honestly I, and, the, and, I, and the, you don't get paid very much if you're pitching an article to the guardian or something you know the money is not good but the perks are are wonderful so i would i, I would if you if you don't need the money <laughs> i would i would you know if you've got something else that pays the bills which which i i, I now do i would really recommend it i suppose the only difference is that now i'm in whiskey mainly Rather than go to hot countries, I now go to cold countries like Ireland and Scotland. So, yeah, I would I would be a drinks writer, perhaps specialising in the Eastern Mediterranean, like Greece and Cyprus and stuff like that. That would be that would be the kind of the dream. If that was how things were, how are things now? And how's lockdown been? We live in a a, a nice little house with a garden. So last summer was. It was actually quite quite pleasant. Um, I have a wife and two daughters. Well, I didn't have two daughters last summer, but I've got another daughter now. So that's nice. Family life is very nice. What's been quite nice is that rather than having to go to London to try whiskies or wines, they just send me samples. So I've got a whole basement just full of booze and I've got the cupboard next to me sort of full of booze. So... That has been really nice, just having it all sent to me. So I can't do the travel writing. You know, I can't do the kind of, you know, I landed at Porto and the smell of the, you know, something hit me, all, all that kind of stuff. But if you want, if I want to write an article on how Rioja is changing or something like that, then I can do that from home. And I think a lot of drinks companies have sort of realised rather than renting a room and in London and flying everybody over, you can just send people bottles and 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 and, t- and talk to people on Zoom. So, in some ways, it it's meant that I've actually managed to get a lot more a lot more work done and a lot more tasting done because I don't have to go anywhere to taste because it all comes to me. But then, of course, you lose that personal thing and you lose the the travel angle as well. So, I would say that it's been, in some ways, has made my life a lot easier. But then my writing is now missing a huge element as well. So it's been some some good, some bad. But the the sort of drinks people, the kind of PR agencies, the marketing people have just been so what's what's the word that everyone uses? Uh, agile. You know the, the way that they switched to sending bottles out and get you know it's it was just effortless and meant that the sort of you know that the articles and everything could continue seamlessly like i'm looking back at the blog that i edit that was my day job the master of all blog and i look back at the year we've had and we've published some brilliant stuff 
just from people, you know, phoning people up and tasting whiskey and stuff. So, yeah, it's been it's been okay. What do you think the legacy of those changes is going to be? What's going to stick? Well, I think there'll be less pointless press trips where whiskey companies, uh, for example, there was a, a press trip I was meant to go on, which was flying to Portugal to try an Irish whiskey because it was aged in port casks. And it's basically just spending money. You know, it's kind of lavish. And But then they kind of realise that everyone is going to write about it anyway. So why are we flying everybody to Portugal? Because everyone's, you know, the, everyone's written about it. So I think people, especially in whiskey, because with wine, there's more to see. There's the sort of treading of the grapes or in Portugal, there's, you know, there's machines everywhere else. But, you know, there's the vineyard and you can see what the vintage is like and stuff. But with whiskey, I hate to say it, it's a more industrial process. So there is less to see. So I think a lot of companies, unless they're doing a sort of come and visit our distillery and meet our distiller and and that sort of stuff, I think there'll be a lot less slightly pointless press trips to exotic locations to get a story. What have you been drinking during lockdown? What's been your liquid of choice? Oh, God. God. I mean, everything, really. Um, what I really like are sort of instant cocktails. So I've got, I've, you know, I've written a few books on cocktails, but to be honest, if I'm, I can't be bothered most of the time. So what I love are things like gin and it. So, you know, half vermouth, half gin on ice, slice of orange, done. Or a palmetto, which is my new favourite one, which is the same, but with rum instead of instead of gin. And I've got very into um, Jamaican rum. So this is this. This one is lovely. It's plantation, Zemeca, and they're very funky and full of kind of sort of almost like overripe pineapple and stuff. So I've got very into yeah, I've got very into rum, and then with wine, I re- I've so- I've just got a hankering for Italian wine, particularly Piedmont Nebbiolo. So I'm, I've I bought a load of Barbaresco just after Christmas because I've just got such a hankering. It's just such a distinctive wine. So those would be my kind of two things, I suppose. It's sort of instant cocktails and Italian reds. That's what I've been drinking a lot of. So this brings us niftily onto your new book, which I've been massively enjoying reading. I think like lots of people who suddenly find that they have the gift of time upon their hands, although not necessarily in the way that they may have chosen to to have it. I've been really getting into cocktails, playing around at home, playing around with ingredients, all sorts of bits and bobs, although I'm starting from a very basic user perspective. I'm more of a drinker of cocktails than than maker of them. Uh, Tell me about the book. How has this all come about? It's really, it's the publisher's book, Mitchell Beasley. They do a series of books like the Gin Dictionary and stuff. And they just, um, they just approached me and said, would you write uh, the cocktail dictionary? And I said, said yes. And so I wrote, I was writing that I think it was 2018 was when I was doing most of the writing. It's sort of my sort of cocktail book because it is quite basic. It's all, all recipes are ones that you can do at home. It doesn't require any sort of making your own tinctures. I mean, I I talk to bartenders the whole time and they'll just be like, they'll start the recipe with three weeks before you want to make the cocktail, make an infusion out of, you know, berries that you've collected yourself. And it's just a bit like, oh, Jesus, I'm not doing that. So it's, it's basically everything that you can buy from your off-licence, everything that you can make in five minutes, doesn't really require, you know, there's a bit of technique, you know, like you need to get used to 
measuring stuff and using enough ice and all that sort of stuff but there's no there's no real skill involved which is just up my street because I'm not a professional bartender I'm quite clumsy um so it's just it was a sort of cocktail book aimed at me so that's why that's why I think it works I absolutely well I, I love the humor all the way through it and I love how it's not I'm trying to find a non-sweary way of saying this and and failing but I love how it, you know it's not wanky um because sometimes when people are you know talking about ingredients or serves or methods there can be a real kind of mystique mythology around things and that could be a real barrier to people having a go and having a crack at uh, making stuff and personally I really really believe in people you know coming to have a go being have a go heroes rummage around in the back of your cupboard see what's there and make some stuff and enjoy it and now we've all kind of got the gift of time on our hands not necessarily in the way we may have wished for it but you know we've got the time on on our hands at home now is the time to kind of you know have a play and don't be put off by some of the this must be gathered by moonlight and run through a rotor at 16 times or any of those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, no, no. Well, that, that, that's what it's aimed at. I think a, a lot of bartenders, and definitely not all of them, because there are some wonderful ones out there. In fact, probably most of them are wonderful. But I think some of them forget that their primary job is to is to serve and is to make you feel good and to make you a drink and to sort of and do that you know mine host sort of thing which I think is as important as making a good drink and I remember going to a bar a few years ago and the the bartender just sort of gave me a lecture and you know didn't talk to me didn't ask me how I was you know which I think is you know at at least 50% of being a bartender is the hospitality thing and I think a lot of them when they start going into laboratories and, you know, calling themselves mixologists and putting on the white coats and stuff, is they forget that side of it. And if you talk to really good bartenders like Alessandro Palazzi at Dukes or someone like that, they, you know, they primarily they are there to make you feel good. And that's the primary job. And then that includes making excellent cocktails. But it's also, you know, asking how you are, you know, making sure you're comfortable, giving, you know, so it's, uh, I think, that is slightly forgotten in the bartender as scientist thing. There's a great line in it as well about beware a bar where the bartender is having more fun than you, which I think is a, a good thing to, to bear in mind. But I have to say that I am just, I would love the opportunity to go to a bar. I'd really love to go into the warm fug of a pub as well, you know, a backstreet boozer somewhere where you can get talking to a stranger at a bar. Oh, missed. Very much missed. Despite having written a few books on cocktails, I'm much more of a of a pub person. And I love going to the pub. I love beer. I love, you know, having like a pint of Harvey's Best or something like that. That's my that's my kind of dream. So I, I do find a lot of the, what's the word? Wankiness around cocktails, just a bit off-putting as I am a, a sort of fairly no-nonsense sort of person. And that's why I like simple ones. Absolutely. Tell me a bit about your work with Master of Malt. Um, yeah, I started working for them in 2018 and they they have a blog and I, I, I edit the blog or I'm the features editor for the blog. So I commission stuff. So we have a few freelance writers who I commission. It's a mixture of sort of news. I mean, our sort of most popular stuff is Ardbeg has a new whiskey. Glenn Morangy has a new whiskey. So we'll write news stuff about that. And then we also do cocktail recipes. In fact, I, do, I write, I generally write the cocktail of the week slot, which is brilliant for 
preparation for for writing this book. In fact, the two things kind of went in sync because I was trying the cocktails and then writing something and writing something different for the book or yeah, a bit similar sometimes. Yeah, and then kind of articles about, you know, trends in whiskey or, you know, why sort of smoked gin is the latest thing or or that kind of stuff. So it's 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 the core stuff is whiskey, but then there's also a lot of cocktail stuff, a lot of gin stuff. So our readers are primarily whiskey followed by gin and then but then we also write stuff on other spirits as well. So it's kind of news, features, trends, recipes about drink. So I'm gonna ask you to peer into your crystal ball. What's on the horizon for the future? You know, is this gonna be is this going to be the much vaunted year of rum, for example? Every every year is meant to be the year of, of rum. I think what's interesting is that a lot of rum producers are now making rums with the flavour profile of gin. They're making spiced rums, but that aren't sweet, aren't coloured, and have, you know, fresh sort of citrusy type botanicals. So I think those are definitely a trend, whether they take off or not is another matter. I mean, I, I, I've been sort of banging on about aged rums, about how they are as interesting as Scotch whiskey and very, very underpriced. And that is definitely happening, but but again, quite slowly. And then there's all those sort of things like that I think are just sort of PR things rather than actually having any currency with drinkers. Like I get like a hundred emails a day about some, something called hard seltzers. Like, have you ever heard of a hard seltzer? It's an alcohol pot with less sugar in. That's, that's the idea. But, but it, from the States, they're called hard seltzers. And the word seltzer kind of means nothing over here apart from Alka-Seltzer. And hard doesn't mean anything either because... In America, they have hard cider, which means alcoholic cider as opposed to apple juice. But here we just have cider. Cider is cider. So it's got two words that mean absolutely nothing to British consumers. And yet I get 100 emails a day saying, coming. And if they are coming, people won't realise that they're hard seltzers. They'll just be like, oh, they've got these new low sugar alco pops or these new cocktails and cans and cocktails and cans that means something to people don't know why they don't call them that so yeah i'm basically i'm saying things that are not happening aren't i um <laughs> i don't think anything particularly exciting is going to happen i think it's just going to be continuation of, of what's been happening before you know your gin people still drinking gin sales are still going up you know those sort of gin substitutes those low alcohol or no alcohol gin substitutes they're doing great guns they're doing really well I haven't got anything earth-shattering, I'm afraid. When such things are possible again and safe and encouraged, where are you going to go for your first release meal and what are you going to have? Well, the very first thing I'll do is I'll go to a pub in Faversham and I'll have like two pints of bitter. There's a very nice pub nearby called The Elephant, which does all kinds of, it's a free house, so it does all kinds of different beers and I'll probably have a couple of pints there. Then I think my wife and I talk about this quite a lot probably Bocca di Lupo in London. It's a wonderful Italian restaurant near Piccadilly that just, we used to go there for our wedding anniversaries, birthdays. Anytime we had something to celebrate, we'd go to Bocca di Lupo and just have whatever they've got on the menu there. But then I think after that, my daughter, my eldest daughter loves Royal China. So we, and we used to go to Royal China at Canary Wharf when we lived in Southeast London like every two weeks or so. So I think we'll go there for dim sum. So I think pint at the local, Bocca de Lupo with my wife, and then dim sum at Royal China. Those, those, those are our top three 
things to do when we can do things. That sounds like a pretty fabulous release itinerary. And that thing, I think there are plenty of people around the country who are also kind of doing that. Where will we go and what will we have and to, to eat and drink? It's become a, a fairly favourite speculation around my own kitchen table. I have to say that one of the things that I do really miss and look forward to is that thing about being able to go into the warm fug of a local pub and get chatting to a stranger about nothing that important and just that thing of being in small intimate cozy spaces probably the last spaces that are going to be for very obvious reasons allowed to open up again yeah i mean that's my worry those sort of places those wonderful bustling sort of places where you get talking to strangers you know they're sort of ones that are you know they're also very good for spreading viruses as well aren't they so it's sort of oh yeah I don't know what the answer is. I just, I I really worry about those sort of places. If people want to keep up to date with what you're up to, what's the best place for them to go to, to come and connect with you and see what you're up to? And also, if they want to lay their mitts on your brilliant book, where's the best place for them to go? Well, it's Top Hat and Tails Bookshop in Faversham. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's it's on Amazon. Try your local bookshop. It's on Amazon if you want to order it from them. You know, it's quite, it's quite widely available. So it's, you know, and it's in the, it it's, it was in the big bookshops in you know in London in sort of Waterstones, Piccadilly and stuff. If you're if you're near there, well, but yeah, Master Malt. If you just sort of type in Master Malt blog, you should get there. I have a website called Henry's World of Booze, which I you know update not as often as I should. I'm on Twitter, uh, Henry G Jeffries, and Instagram, which I'm not very good at Instagram. I can't I'm not very good at t- taking pictures, so maybe don't follow me on Instagram. And finally, if you're going to pick one cocktail from your book for the extreme novice, me, for example, where would you recommend they start? What's good to kick off with? I'd, I'd say something like a Manhattan, which is, you can't get it wrong, one part Italian vermouth, two parts bourbon gin, but you could also use Irish whiskey, which makes it an emerald, or Scotch whiskey, which makes it a Rob Roy. You know, it's just, it's sort of, any brown spirit really and then just stir it over ice you don't even need a you don't even need a um, a shaker just stir it in a jug lots and lots of ice so that it cools down without diluting too much dash of angostura bitters if you have it pour it into an ideally a chilled glass it doesn't need to be a martini glass you could use a tumbler or something like that that's you don't really need to measure it well you do need to measure it but you don't need to you know measure it by Exactly. It's just, you know, two parts that, one part that. And then it's, so it's very easy to do. Or the other one, which is ridiculously easy, is an old fashioned. So you just any brown spirit or even, you know, you could use mezcal or you could even use gin. You know, you can make a, a gin old fashioned and it's just ice, a little bit of sugar syrup and bitters. And that's and then you just make it to taste. You just put it in, add some sugar, add some syrup. You know, is that right? You know, and, and there's no measuring at all required. So that that's the old fashioned is even easier. Oh, I absolutely love an old fashioned, but I have to give a public service announcement. Beware them on a Tuesday night. They are a lot of fun. They are very, very dangerous, though. That's the problem with cocktails, isn't it? Because they are designed to make strong booze easier to drink. That is the point of a cocktail. So with whiskey, neat, you've got to give it some respect. As soon as you start adding sugar to it, then it's like, oh, this is just like, you know, so I, I'm the same as you. I have to be, I have sort of one or two, and then I'll just move on to rosé or something like that, which I which I can drink slowly. But cocktails, 
Ooh, you know, straight back, gone. You've been listening to The Sipping Forecast with Cathy Caton, a podcast on all things drinks. You can subscribe in Spotify, Anchor FM, Google Podcasts and a host of other platforms. And if you want to get in touch, please do. We'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at Cathy Caton or at Brighton Gin and we'll get back to you. And if there's someone you really want to hear from on The Sipping Forecast, just get in contact and let me know and we'll do our best to make it happen.